This podcast is published by MDA National to support doctors in managing common medico-legal issues. Hello, it's Norman Swan here. Welcome to another podcast where MDA National doctor members and expert staff share medical legal pearls of wisdom, practical tips and interesting case studies. Today I'm talking to MDA National Manager Medical Legal Advisory Services and General Practitioner Dr Sarah Bird on how to avoid common medical legal mistakes. Sarah has worked as a medical legal advisor for 20 years and is the author of the Medical Legal Handbook for General Practice. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. I mean, what's the most infuriating things or frustrating things that you see happening? You think if only they had done X, Y, and Z, then things would be better. Probably the key issue there is to be focused on that communication and empathy with patients. So one of the most common causes of complaints against doctors is where there has been some sort of breakdown in the communication between a doctor and a patient or the patient's expectations not being met. So complaints against doctors don't necessarily arise because there's been an error or any sort of adverse treatment outcome. And so the key issue in trying to avoid complaints is is focusing on that doctor-patient relationship. Can you give me some stories of things you've seen happening so that it's much more tangible for people to understand where they could go wrong? Yeah, so they can be simple things. You know, causes of complaints can be things like the patient being angry by the time they come into your consultation room because they've been waiting for a long time. Now that happens to all doctors for a whole variety of reasons. And so managing that initial interaction with a patient can be a really important thing. Something as simple as saying, instead of saying, look, I'm really sorry, I've kept you waiting or not even saying anything at all, thanking the patient, saying thank you for waiting to see me. So in that situation... It's entering the patient's world and respecting them rather than being apologetic for a situation which was probably unavoidable. Yes, indeed. So I think that concept of standing in the patient's shoes and trying to understand the patient's experience, well, it's really one of the key skills that doctors have. Remembering that and keeping that as part of your focus, I think, is really important. And easier said than done. I mean, I think we're all good communicators on a good day you well know, you know, when you're hungry, angry, late, tired, communication skills can be challenging. Or when the patient is challenging to manage, again, it's, it's trying to focus on those, those issues. Now, let's just focus on waiting time for a moment because that could set, um, you know, you're off on a bad footing to start with. Are there innovative things that you've seen doctors do about the wait time which improves things by before the patient comes in? Yes, I mean, I think in terms of the actual practice management, there are strategies that you can put in place in terms of trying to manage that, even as simple things of having, you know, blank appointments so you've got the opportunity to, to actually catch up. But again, I think if you come back to the individual doctor-patient relationship, there's that really good literature that waiting and not interrupting the patient too early in their narrative will actually shorten your consultation. So the importance of allowing them to tell their story initially before you start asking, as you have to, more directive questions to get a good history. Again, the literature shows that you can actually reduce your consultation times, again, by using those sort of communication skills. So the trick here, I'm just thinking of the tip that goes along with this, that is really related to not jumping to conclusions too early. If you look in terms of the most common cause of claims, for example, against 
general practitioners, up to 50% of those claims are related to allegations of a failure to diagnose. And again, the literature suggests that about 80% of that group of claims, large group of claims against general practitioners, arise potentially from cognitive biases and knowledge issues. And one of the most common cognitive biases is that issue of premature closure. So where the patient gives you a clue and you think, aha, um, that must be reflux that this patient is suffering from, and then potentially missing the subtle parts in the history that are more suggestive of an ischemic heart disease. So it's particularly hard in general practice when you've got so many different issues coming in through the door and so many different issues in each patient. You know, if you're a colorectal surgeon, well, you, you, kind, you kind of know what you're dealing with. But, um, you know, the, the old Michael Balance story from the 50s research would suggest that 30% of the time somebody's coming in with another problem and there's a ticket of entry, which might be the flu, but there's something else sitting there. And if you don't dig that out, you're in trouble. Absolutely. And that, of course, is the huge skill in general practitioners. And they are the ultimate diagnosticians. You know, that ability to take an undifferentiated presentation um, and then come to the correct diagnosis involves an enormous amount of skill. We've been focusing on general practice, but presumably this cognitive bias and even missing the underlying picture, although I was just, you know, not having a go at colorectal surgeons, but saying it's much simpler. It's not necessarily simpler for a colorectal surgeon because there too, there could be a ticket of entry. Indeed, yes. And though, again, if you look at, at claims, so we've talked about the claims against general practitioners, probably about half of them relate to that allegation of failure to diagnose. If you look at proceduralists, so such as colorectal surgeons and procedural physicians for that matter, m the most common source of their claims arise from procedural complications. And often associated with that is a delay in recognition of the complication. And again, I think there's probably that delay may arise from the fact that these complications are very infrequent in the hands of an individual proceduralist or surgeon. But again, I think there's probably some cognitive biases that play their part in, in that delay in recognising the complication. What other disasters have you seen that are, are, that are preventable that you, we could give some practical tips about? So I think one of the other things that you're not necessarily taught in medical school is the importance of saying no. That is where if it feels wrong, then it probably is wrong and the importance of getting advice in that situation. And we see it quite a lot at my end of the desk as a medical legal advisor is in general practice with the issue of Schedule 8 prescribing. So we've got a huge problem as a community with opioids and there are some GPs that have a great deal of difficulty in managing those interactions with patients. Those patients who are often, they can either be extremely charming, they can be Academy Award-winning actors in the way they present, or they can be quite threatening in an overt or quite subtle way. And so the importance of having the ability to say no and doing that in, in a safe and respectful manner. It arises for surgeons as well. So the best example there are the plastic surgeons who may have um, problems with patient selection. Um, so again, selecting the correct patient to have surgery and saying no to those patients who are not suitable for certain procedures. I, I mean, the worry from you know, a surgeon would be presumably um, if you're going to say no, or even a physician, uh, you're going to say, well, I think you've reached the end of the line here. 
is the worry that they're going to come back at you because you were wrong in saying no. Yes, but my experience would suggest that the more common problem is not saying no when you should. So, for example, say let's use the example of plastic surgery. So a patient who's had some sort of cosmetic procedure, so you know, breast implants, and then comes back and says, I'm not happy with them. And yet from an objective point of view, you as the surgeon are thinking, well, actually, you've had quite a good result from this surgery. And the patient demands the next procedure and the next procedure. And ultimately, that will often end up in a complication or a patient who remains dissatisfied and is now spending money on three procedures rather than one procedure. Maybe that's my bias as a medical legal advisor, but I think some doctors don't appreciate that they can say no and also they can ultimately end a doctor-patient relationship. But that could get tricky in psychiatry. Yes and no. I mean, again, ultimately, this principles still apply in, in private practice and there would be a number of doctor-patient relationships, even in psychiatric practice, where that discussion needs or that thought needs to occur. Generally, by the time doctors have rung me as a medical legal advisor, they have tried every possible strategy to preserve that doctor-patient relationship. And so generally, once they've phoned me for advice, the conversation is more along how that can be done respectfully and safely for the patient. So pr presumably you would prefer that conversation to be earlier? Yes, I think it would be useful often for the doctors who find those sort of situations very stressful to manage. And the reality is not every doctor-patient relationship is going to be a successful relationship. And that in itself, I think, can sometimes be difficult to acknowledge. But of course, a patient that you're finding challenging isn't necessarily going to be challenging for another doctor. So tell me what sort of advice you give. So let's say I'm a plastic surgeon or cosmetic surgeon, I phone you up and say, I'm, I'm really struggling here, I'm just going to private practice. And uh, you know, this patient's clearly, I'm the third surgeon he or she's come to see. I think she's fine, I don't want to operate. How do I let this person down safely? What, what, what advice do you give for the conversation? What's the script? In that situation, it's about the patient. It's not, not about the doctor. Although the doctor's saying to me, I'm having trouble managing this. I don't think it's going to be a good idea to do another procedure. And so it's coming up with the, the right words. But part of those words, and I guess the secret of success, is to be talking about that in terms of it is in your best interest. So in that case, you might be saying, I don't think it's going to be in your best interest to have another procedure. I don't think I'm going to be the surgeon who can help you at this point in time going forward. It's in your best interest to go back and discuss this with your GP or whoever the appropriate person is. Or that might be a situation where you might be discussing with the surgeon whether they think it would be a good idea to get a second opinion so that the patient has an opportunity um, to see somebody else and get their advice. Any other big areas that you think people need to take note of that um, where you can make mistakes and you could put in some preventive action? couple of issues there. I think the importance of having good professional boundaries, the maintenance of those boundaries between doctor and patient is very important. Remembering that ultimately, you know, the doctor commits to that relationship solely to serve the needs of the patient. Um, and so again, I guess that focus on the patient. So where does slippage occur? What, what's the first kind of step that leads to professional boundaries being relaxed where people might not realise that's the first step to doom and disaster. So the literature would talk about that slippery slope where it will often start with the patient 
coming frequently, often choosing the last appointment in the day. It might then lead to, you know, having a coffee with the patient and that blurring of the lines between the doctor-patient relationship and then can proceed from there. So again, being really mindful of those boundaries. And I think now that medicine is a much less formal, so doctors will be referred to by their Christian names, likewise patients. Um, I think that's made it more difficult for this generation of doctors to necessarily see that very clear separation between their role as a doctor and then you know, their role in the community. A bit hard for rural doctors where they can be friends in the community if you're the only doctor in town. Yes, indeed. And you do hear some wonderful stories um, for how rural doctors will manage that. So one great example I remember hearing was a rural doctor who, when he was in his surgery, he always wore a tie. And so patients, the people in the community would know that if he was wearing his tie, he was being the doctor. And yet, whenever he was out in the community and as you say, you know, interacting with people, he dressed quite differently. So his way of managing it was almost to have a uniform which showed when he was a doctor. Anything else apart from professional boundaries where people need to take note? Again, I'd, one of the other key issues, and I alluded to it early on, is this potential association between physician burnout and, and medical errors. Again, the importance of keeping well and looking after yourself and enables you, I think, really to be at you know, the top of your game in some of those, both communication skills, the knowledge issues, and the procedural issues that are so important. So in summary then, what are your top tips? Keep up to date with your knowledge and skills. Keep well. Um, and remember that empathy and kindness are probably the best way to prevent medico-legal problems. And one of my favourite sayings is that saying of the secret of the care of the patient is in caring for the patient. And walking a mile in their shoes occasionally. Indeed. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Here to support you, visit MDA National's website at mdanational.com.au or call 1-800-011-255 for tailored advice specific to your situation, career stage or policy.